Hello and welcome to another episode of Wither the Luniversity, the podcast of the Peerless Review. I'm very excited about my guest today. He is Assistant Professor of Psychology at the University of Toronto. His specialty is developmental psychopathology um, and child and youth mental health. It, he is Dr. J.D. Haldigan. Um, his Twitter is at JD Haltigan, and he has a fantastic substack called the Multi-Level Mailer. He has dozens of peer-reviewed publications in psychology, and he served in an editorial capacity in a number of peer-reviewed journals. JD, welcome. Thanks for being with us. Thank you, Adam, for having me. Really looking forward to to um, talking with you today. So for the students who, who listen to this, I always ask everyone, how did you get into psychology to begin with? What interested you about this discipline and and what continues to interest you? About well, it? actually, I, I came up through the ranks as a um, mainly an athlete. And then I got into like, um, you know, in the early or the late 80s, early 90s, sort of the understanding of, uh, I guess you could say, you know, antisocial criminal behavior sort of got sidetracked a little bit by like the silence of the lambs type of discourse and profiler. And then I kind of leveraged that into just reading more and more, um, understanding sort of the, the antisocial mind really from a more, you know, deeper perspective than just profiling. And that kind of just took me all the way through, you know, undergraduate, I started as a criminal justice major and then I added psychology to that and and lo and behold I really kind of transitioned to psychology more as a focal interest away from really the sort of practical criminal justice elements and then um, after you know after undergraduate I did a, a terminal master's in forensic psych which had a research focus and then and then I then I ended up doing my PhD and um, developmental psych, but with a focus on psychopathology. So understanding, you know, issues that are relevant to mental health and and one of those being antisocial conduct or or externalizing behavior, as we call it. And I did spend some time outside of Rochester, New York, working in a residential facility where I really gained sort of practical on the ground experience working with youth who who, who really had these sorts of difficulties. So was that the transition for you, that experience that moved you kind of from interest in adult psychopathology to childhood and adolescent? Well, no, I, I think I really focus on um, psychopathology across the lifespan. But I would say that given sort of my interest, yeah, I mean, I, I have more of an interest in adolescent mental health. Um, mainly because I, I'm interested a little bit in, in what leads to, you know, what are the sort of biosocial predictors or, you know, uh, contributors to mental health issues. So, you know, typically adolescence is a time where we see a lot of that sort of come into play. So that's my focus there, but I'm not restricted to just adolescence per se. Fantastic. So one thing that I, I've had a few uh, experts in psychology on the program, and with all of them, I like to talk about sort of the state of the discipline at large, because 
on this program, we talk a lot about generally the the wokeification of the university. And I think that this plays out in different ways and in different fields. And you and I uh, received our PhDs in the same year, 2009. So you've kind of observed the same period of time in the life of the university that I have. Um, what have you seen in how the discipline of psychology has changed over the time you've been involved in university life? Well, in, in, in my case, you know, the field of psych was was traditionally, um, I would say, more, especially developmental, which is the study of, you know, infants and children. It was more heavily, you know, female oriented in, in a good way and not, not in a bad way per se, but but the sort of male element of hard empirical rigor was was subsidiary to to that and while it was there it's it's since that you know since that sort of initial sort of baseline level of of rigor that's needed in developmental psych but also in the social sciences more broadly it's it's now been completely jettisoned and lost so what you have is just in my opinion a completely sort of more or less subjectivized state of affairs where empirical rigor is is either non-existent or minimal. Um, and that's especially concerning in, in developmental psych because you're studying, you know, the role of of caregivers and in, in their influence above and beyond biological or genetic factors on development. So you really want to have in your research empirical rigor, um, quantitative mastery um, to the extent that you can. And if that's lost and we sort of rely on lived experience and these more subjectivized uh, rubrics to evaluate research, um, as you as you well appreciate, things start to fall apart. And, you know, you, you, you lose the ability to do good work and, and to, to understand really and get at the truth. And so without, you know, being, I guess, in a way ruthless, I think it's become largely a, a feminized academy, um, especially in the social sciences. And I don't restrict that. It's not, it's not a, a, a male, female thing. It's feminization is both in men and women, but um, it's, it's too much of a feelings oriented, subjectivized discipline an academy now and you're seeing the consequences of that play out with the sort of restriction of liberal discourse disagreeableness which is essential to you know a good 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 scientific debate is lost and so it's it's really been concerning to me over the course of the last decade to to see that um I know the hard sciences are are somewhat insulated from that, given their their makeup. But even even them, you know, even those have been infiltrated, and and certainly with some of the social things that have happened in in the U.S., especially that have contributed to the wokeification of the academy, it's gone off the rails. And so I'm I'm at a point now where you you just have to focus on doing good work and hopefully the students and the science will follow and the colleagues will follow and in the end science will win out and that's kind of where i am you you talk about sort of the the gender differences between 
I guess, predispositions when it comes to research. And, you know, I, I imagine that some listeners might sort of be shocked to, to hear that. But many people don't know, you probably do, um, but many don't, that um, in a lot of feminist academic discourse, uh, they frame sort of the empirical quantitative approach as characteristically masculine. And when they try to elaborate a feminist method of inquiry, uh, one of the things they valorize is precisely the the ideas that you're talking about, subjectivism, relativism, the the role of lived experience. So it, it what you're saying isn't sort of a masculine perspective. It's actually like the feminists themselves who are saying that this is how they're going to understand their own research. Um, I want to ask you about em empirical research, because it seems to me, I think that the the sense of outsiders like me is that science and, and quantitative empirical research has to play a role in psychology. So when motivated activist researchers are using empirical tools and they find results that don't align with the interests of their activism, how do they deal with that? Do they calibrate a method beforehand that will allow them to generate the conclusion that they want? Or will they go into it sort of with an open mind about what the results will be? And then if they find out um, that their hypothesis is incorrect, or they find out a, that there's sort of a troubling conclusion that they don't like, or that conflicts with their own political commitments, do they just trash the study? I mean, how does... How, do you have any idea, like, how do these activists deal with the, the realities of empirical research if they do engage in it? I, I guess, you know, my, I, I frame it in terms of storytelling that activist researchers and, and the sort of radical feminists that I'm aware of, especially those that are in sort of the more social science disciplines, it's narrative, right? So there's no hypothesis. There's sort of a generalized sort of we need to understand the lived experience of an individual rather than understand, you know, uh, structural relations among truths in the population that that really what science is about, you know, literature and storytelling certainly have a place in the discourse. Ideally, you know, the great works of literature typically uh, reinforce population level world truths and, and do so in a way that is, you know, um, clear cut and, um, you know, has that literary sort of talent to it. But in the case of, of research that is storytelling, it, it, it's, it's, it's storytelling. It's not research. That's simply what it is. And it's, it's great. And it can, it can inform hypotheses, but it's not research. It's not science. It's, it's something else. And that's kind of the creep that you're seeing is almost sort of like, this journalistic storytelling emotional way of 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 understanding the world creep into um the science that needs to you know to, to the science part of research which is about understanding lawful relations in the world and that's really where i where i kind of see it so they don't come in with really rigorous hypotheses that they want to test and so forth. It's more just let's understand so-and-so's experience um, as 
you know, whatever 15,000 identities they want to put on them and, and, and sort of feel with them. And that's, that's not the way to handle research. That's storytelling. It almost seems sometimes as though the research itself plays a therapeutic role for the researcher. Um, You know, that's, that's the, 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 the choice of research topics is dictated to some degree by the, the, the experience of the self, um, if that makes sense. I see this in, in my own graduate students where it's sort of like we'll talk about, you know, a wide range of topics in the semester, but then we'll have the mother of three choose to write about the rhetoric of motherhood. And, you know, the African-American students are interested in African-American rhetoric. And it almost starts to seem as though the choice of research focus is really just a, a, a way it serves as a mirror rather than an outward looking thing into the world. Do you see that in, in psychology? I see it in the sense of um, students who want to work with me. Usually some of the initial emails I get they're they're they take a more activist sort of stance and saying that they've been, you know, they've seen something or, you know, they want to help. And so, you know, that's kind of framed their interest in, in, in research or an interest in working with me. I wouldn't even say research, but it's driven by sort of some emotional event that, that they've kind of had in their life or uh, perception that they've had of the world. And so that's kind of how I see that sort of element to it. Um, it's not to say that those perceptions and those interactions and engagements with the world can't or shouldn't shape their interest in research. It's just that they can't, they can't let that run astray and become unbridled in the sense of understanding the world. So um, trying to kind of harness them in when, when they do get into research in, in the sense of allowing them to have an open mind around their perception and rigorously evaluating it is really the challenge, I think. There's the, the second largest major after business at my university is psychology. And this fascinates me because it begs the question, what are 18-year-olds drawn to in this? And my, my working theory, and it's a it's a very loose one, um, is that people want to figure themselves out, right? That there's there's a lot of navel gazing going on among sort of 18, 19, 20 year olds, and they think that psychology can answer some questions for them about themselves that they couldn't answer otherwise. Do you think generally that's a, a big attraction to very young college students uh, or young people to the discipline? I would say that I think that um, it is. I mean, I've taught some large seminar courses where I think that's a very big motivating force for, for a lot of the students, particularly around relationships. But I think nowadays, especially with psychology, it's sort of the perceived um, easiness of the major. Um, it's not quantitatively based particularly so especially with the intro courses, unless you get into a research sequence. Um, so I think it's a combination of those two things. Um, you know, they think they're going to understand some deep insight into how they're feeling. Um, and it's, it's sort of an individual level field mentality rather than let's understand broad population laws and, and 
um, relations in the world or, or the individual is part of a larger aggregate. So I would see those two factors. One is what you said. It's kind of, you know, they want to understand some deep insight into a relationship or their own feeling state. And also, too, I think a lot of it has to do with just sort of the perceived, you know, um, simplicity of, of the of the discipline, especially given that, you know, I think some of the one on one courses still revolve around this notion of, you know, Freud and the history of psych. And so it's not really up to date on the scientific psychological science that really characterizes good psychological research today. Hmm. What's your take on Freud? I'm curious. As as an empirical psychologist, I mean, is uh, I, I understand his foundational work in the field, but it seems that from a scientific perspective, an enormous amount of his central claims have been sort of debunked. Am I wrong about that? No, you're not wrong. And I mean, I think, you know, obviously the, the particular way of most people would respond to, to the Freud questions, you know, he was writing on the science of his time. But I see actually Freud as much different. He's he's improperly perceived, in my view, as sort of a, a psychologist per se, even though he was a clinical person. He's really a cultural psychologist in the sense of, you know, he understand cultural psychology and was talking more to a cultural psychology than he was anything to do with um you know individual development per se um i the one thing that's really changed my view of freud from sort of psychologist quack to actual intelligent you know really had some contributions is reading the work of philip reef and to a lesser extent christopher lash who who properly contextualized freud for what they thought really was his contribution was was really understanding i guess you could say psychological dynamics at a cultural level and, and really understanding sort of the idea of you know could man tolerate anxiety or could humankind tolerate anxiety and and sort of the new therapeutic regime of you, you know the 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 mental health industry was all about you know finding sort of self-actualization versus actually tolerating anxiety. So, you know, without digressing too strongly, you know, Freud clearly wasn't what you would call a psychological scientist, as we now today would think of one, but but his contributions were sort of culturally, I think. You mentioned uh, Reef and Lash, and, and this is one of the things that interests me about you, I look at your Twitter and you read some stuff that strikes me as uncharacteristic for a psychologist. Another example I would give is uh, you you put up something about Daniel Borston, uh, who wrote The Image, which is, uh, I, I suppose it touches tangentially on some psychological concerns, but it, it seems very far afield to me. And so uh, I think you are an eclectic researcher in in that sense. Um, so I'm curious, we talked a little about act, uh, activist research. In the field of psychology broadly, if you had to just sort of spitballing an estimate, what percentage of research that gets published in psychology today would you say has some sort of activist stake? speaking in terms of political activism or um, a, a per particular dog in the, the fight of over culture. Um, 
I think that's definitely greatly had an uptick since the Floyd situation and, and, and incident and death in Minneapolis, as well as sort of the uptick in the gender uh, ideology discourse. Now, all of this was sort of marinating prior to the Floyd death, yeah. prior to the uptick in the gender insanity discourse, which is, I think, largely been amplified on social media, particularly on Twitter, where the where the battles played out. But it's it's you know, when I was doing my Ph.D. back in 2004 to 2009, I wasn't really aware. It didn't strike me or it didn't enter you know into my perception, this sort of insanity. But now, like every commentary I see in some of the flagship journals that were once bastions of of good psychological rigor have become completely activist machines for the, for we know for a long time, the APA has been captured ideologically. Um, APS has gone off the rails, but even, even some journals that I had a lot of respect for um, have published editorials that, you know, have just all the, the social justice DEI copy pasta that is not at all empirically rigorous. It undermines everybody in the field, regardless of your ethnicity or your race. And it's it's quite frankly appalling to me. So I would say a, a large uptick. That's not to say that good research doesn't get done. And I think that's the hard part is someone like myself who, who knows other good researchers who are in the academy, who are at some woke schools, but they do good research. So it's really the onus is on the student or the researcher to digest as it is with anything, but but speaking broadly, it's you know there's been a dramatic dramatic rise in in sort of the politically ideologically motivated discourse that's being published. Would it be um, fair to say maybe fifty percent of it now has some angle in that sense, is, or is it more or less than fifty percent? Would you say putting a percentage on it? I think would be hard for me, but certainly. Certainly somewhere north of 50%. Yeah. That's scary. So let's talk a little bit about the replication crisis. I've talked to some other people in your field about this. And this is the idea that when they went back um, to see uh, whether or not the results that have been published in many peer-reviewed journals could be replicated, and of course, replication is a, a, a key criterion for establishing um, you know, empirical truth um, or or uh, validity. Um, it seems they couldn't replicate uh, many landmark studies. And um, I wonder, uh, this so-called replication crisis, could you talk a little bit about what you see as the causes of it? Is this a phenomenon that's misunderstood by the public or um, what's your insight there? As far as the replication crisis, I mean, I don't think the public misunderstands it. I, I was somewhat largely insulated from that to a certain degree because I'm not a personality psychologist, even though I, I do I, I do sort of study personality traits and so forth and some of the current work I'm doing. And, and this, the replication crisis really emerged in, in personality and social psych where, you know, you had many, many publications about phenomenon that were, you know, sort of off the cuff observations about human behavior that never did replicate or or they you know they didn't really replicate that well now within my own sort of focal area we've had issues with um 
you know, interaction effects and moderation, like, you know, the, the sort of uh, early experiences that are negative plus the short allele of, of serotonin leading to depression and that never really replicated. And, and so I've seen it from that standpoint and the need for large samples, the need for uh, clear hypotheses that you test. And this gets back to sort of the initial discourse that we had about subjectivized lived experience. So, you know, you can't, you have replication crises when you when you talk about lived experience because you're not analyzing phenomenon at the appropriate level of the population. And so the public's understanding of the replication crises, which you know has come largely from social media, is not necessarily misunderstood. It's just that it's really sort of you know, it's really been centered and emerged from the social and personality research discourse. That's not to say that there hasn't been other replication crises across all the fields, but that's really where sort of the the sort of popular understanding of replication crises came from. Mm -hmm. um, but we're going to be in a worst case scenario if we continue down this road of subjectivized lived experience activism across what's getting published in so-called scientific journals. So um, from that standpoint, you know, I think that the prior replication crises is, is a good, you know, a good barometer for where we could be if, if this stuff continues to spiral out of control with the social justice rhetoric and, and sort of the lived experience narrative stuff. So you are uh, an expert in um, early care uh, of children and and the effects that that can have in terms of uh, psychopathology. And one thing that I think is becoming increasingly clear is that the kids are not all right. Um, Jean Twenge is is one high profile researcher who has talked about. Uh, the really alarming rates of depression and anxiety uh, in, I guess, what we would call Generation Z, kind of young millennials and, and uh, Zoomers, um, compared to earlier generations. And it does seem as though, you know, they are less able to deal with adversity. Um, they uh, statistically are sort of less socially involved, more isolated. Uh, there's all these phenomena. And, and so, you know, sometimes I wonder, how did this happen and how did it happen so quickly? Because I think there is empirical research that it's not just sort of Gen X and above saying, oh, the kids these days. There really is sort of a real phenomenon that's happening in terms of their mental health. Do you have insight into what caused this? I mean, is it bad parents? Is it a larger scale phenomena or or what? Yeah, I, I've been actually focusing more on that recently. And, you know, I studied initially early caregiving, but but the current crises that we're in, which is, is a crisis, no doubt, you know, and I've interacted and engaged with, I know, I'm familiar with, with Jeannie Twenge, as you mentioned, and, and I've talked with John Haidt about a lot of this stuff. It's it's social media, and in particular, the immersive algorithmic social media like Twitter and like TikTok, but TikTok, especially Instagram, where, um, you know, it's, it's media that basically becomes sort of 
the, the way the person actually engages with the world. The, the medium becomes sort of the, the persona. And so, you know, you don't, ha- it's just entirely creating these selves that are, that are generated and, 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 um, engaged with online in the social media landscape and there's no contact with actual external reality. It's virtual. Um, this is especially concerning uh, for adolescent females who we know from decades of work that, you know, adolescent females experience an uptick in anxiety and depression and, and other traits like neuroticism during adolescence in the pubertal time period. And then you pair that with these communities where, you know, these these individuals can interact online and sort of establish this emotional connectivity and resonance that can soon spiral out of control if there's no contact with external reality. This is particularly concerning with um, mental health self-diagnoses now on TikTok. The diagnoses become the identity of the persona to be valorized. Um, gender gender ideology is clearly implicated here. So more broadly, social contagion. And so it's it's really what's happening in my view, and, and I'm seeing this in some of the papers that I'm reviewing, we see suicides increasing, um, is that the ex- actual experience of living is not even being done in the external environment. It's being done completely online. And I've, I've written a lot about this on my Substack. Um, had conversations with uh, various people on call-in about this. And it's it's alarming, but it's, it's difficult in some ways to study because you have to develop rigorous methodology to track and quantify a lot of what's happening in, in a different world than we're normally used to. And so that requires, you know, creative thinking and, and so forth. So... Um, I think social media, and that's sort of a, a sort of a broad cliche type response, but more specifically, social media that is immersive and algorithmic. So not like your Facebook, not just having a phone or being on some message board, but the TikTok oriented and Instagram oriented world where anybody can create an identity and sort of live within that online day-to-day immersively you know in an immersive fashion without any contact with the actual real world of, of humanity so and that's that, go ahead that leads inevitably to dissonance when what's experienced in an online community of emotional resonance and likes and retweets doesn't meet or accord with what the individual experiences in external in the external world. So it's almost as though these selves that have been fashioned can't be maintained outside of, of this little box. And of course, when they encounter that that that, that self is it cannot be maintained in daily human real interaction, that causes some some trauma. How much of the like the pronoun stuff do you think is an attempt to force people to accommodate that identity that's crafted online in in the real world to try to um in to try to i guess kind of coerce the the circumstances that would allow for the maintenance of the online self in more everyday banal circumstances and interactions 
Well, I think that's a good way to put it, the online shop. And I think a lot of the postmodern identity discourse is exactly that, right? So you have sort of the fat acceptance um, group and you have the pronouns. And so this is a way to force, you know, a pseudo identity onto the normal population. And I say normal in the sense of not really any value driven way, but in a statistical way. And so that becomes a problem because the population recognizes that these people are living false selves and they're not going to tolerate having sort of uh, a, a way of seeing the world that is not, you know, for lack of a better way of putting it, the normal way. And so not only does that undermine, you know, normal civic life, but it, it actually, in my view, it actually worsens the situation for those who are struggling with really what are identity issues. And, and in some cases in very, you know, a very small percentage, some are really having struggles with, you know, let's say gender dysphoria, but it's such a small, small percentage. But once you try to force that way of, of thinking about human social behavior onto the normal world and the normal population, they're not going to react well to being forced to tolerate that. And that's going to lead to further undermining of those who do struggle with these serious issues. And so that's kind of a larger concern for me about some of this stuff. But it's the ideologues who push it, who really undermine those who are struggling with, you know, true, you know, it, it might not be a gender identity issue, but they're struggling with basically tolerating anxiety. They're, they're, they're struggling with emotional um, dysregulation, whether that's from, you know, biological reasons, or they've had, you know, non-optimal parenting, that's to be, you know, to be unpacked. But the issue is they're struggling. And so the way to deal with their struggle is not to just say, we're going to create any identity and force others to see you that way and accept it as normative. But we're going to, we're going to have to challenge you a little bit and, and, and push you to sort of engage with your, your issues in a way that will allow you to develop some resilience and understanding of why you feel this way in the first place. It seems almost like uh, this, this attempt to normalize the statistical abnormality is a, is a kind of intellectual colonialism, right? Where it's, it's like, even if, even if you recognize that, these things are not normal. This this insistence that you that you at least treat it as such, even if you don't believe it, is uh, really kind of a, an aggressive attempt to, I mean, really just police thoughts. It seems to me. Yeah, that, that, that's what it's become, and I think that's because what's happened is is once you reach a threshold level where you know you have these people pushing this stuff it just it just becomes it becomes that it becomes sort of its own um you know ideological movement and results in that kind of shutting down of speech and if you if you disagree you're a fascist or you're a terrorist or in the case of for example you know if you disagreed for example with covid restrictions you were a eugenicist it's just completely insane um and i think it comes back to again some of the 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 feminization of the academy 
So I, uh, among others, I am a father to a 13-year-old uh, girl. That's my oldest. So if, if we had parents who of adolescent children and especially adolescent girls who were listening to this, what would your advice be? If, if this is largely, um, if, if these uh, psychological issues are largely a product of certain immersive forms, social media, do you have advice to parents? I mean, how should I deal with that? You know, that's a hard, a hard, a hard ask in a way, because, you know, the easy answer is just get off of social media, but that's not, that's, that's not going to happen. I, I think what needs to happen is to find a way to sort of mitigate the toxic effects of being extremely online or extremely on social media. And, and I think for me, Physical activity, outdoor activity is a crucial component. Um, get get them into a situation where they physically literally can't hold their phone or their social media for a sustained period of time. Um, football, this is where I think sports is such a crucial role. Um, you know, outdoor activities that in a way sort of indirectly limit the time that you can be on the phone or, or what have you. Um that's really kind of how I see it to begin with. I think over time, you know, good parents, if they're aware and they're asking their children of what they're experiencing online, asking to see what they're engaging with, that's crucial because, you know, a, a good parent structures, they scaffold, they organize. Um, and, and so that to me is crucial. It's not necessarily restriction, but awareness and getting them into outdoor activity or activity away from the screen um, because it, it is a virtual world if if you let it be. And, and if the virtual world is so immersive that the individual is unable to, to, you know, disengage from it in a way that contacts with the environment in a normal way, that's when it's really toxic and when the effects can really, I think, become amplified and, and more damaging. Is it too pie in the sky to imagine that there would be on these forms of social media a real way that they could do age verification and that on the end of the platform itself, they could limit the amount of, of use of these things? Um, I, I mean, I know that there's a financial incentive that would make them never do this, but it could be done, right? I mean, would it be possible in your view, to sort of legislate that or? You know, I've kind of, um, you know, had some discourse with, with John Haidt about this and read some of his thoughts on this and how we go about this. I, I don't know. Like, I, I'm still kind of tossing that around in my head. I think it's kind of a fool's errand to think that legislation would really make a difference. And then it becomes sort of a slippery slope with authoritarian type, banning of things and so i think the key is don't rely on the the larger government or agencies to create the, the limitations it, it has to come from the individual and the, and the family uh, and this gets back actually to the role of the family i mean you know social media is here to stay it's not going to go away it's only going to get different more nuanced um so it's really integrating that within, you know, what what were pre-social media times. And, and that's, you know, that's 
contact with the environment, um, outdoor activity, even game night, if, if other families people. do that. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, other people in, in, in what we would call in, in research, you know, in situ, um, in situations. So. Huh. So shifting directions a little bit, I mean, all of these larger trends that we've talked about are to some degree a, a product of the universities. I mean, the uni university uh, um, expertise produced things like Twitter and Instagram, and they've also produced to some extent the attitudinal and cultural shifts um, and political shifts that have defined this. You've mentioned that the university has basically gone mad. Is it too far gone to get it back, in your opinion? I mean, is there is there any realistic expectation that we could restore the sanity of the American university, or is it at this point just irredeemable? You know, I would say three or four months ago, I was kind of, you know, hopeful and I'm at the point now where I just don't know, man. I just don't know. And and I, I'm getting less and less hopeful each day with the continued insanity that I'm seeing that's coming out of the 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 academy. Um ultimately it's gonna be up to the students who demand the truth. And so I think that's, you know, that's kind of what's keeping me in the game is the students who have reached out to me, the students who are working with me. They know it's a lie, the good ones. And they don't have the platforms or the ability to speak up about it necessarily, but they do want to learn. They do want to be in a merit-based situation where they can compete. I have students from all different identities and backgrounds um, and, and I think, you know, COVID highlighted a lot of the insanity. So, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, a lot of my colleagues in the academy at the, at the professorial level, you, you know, they're, they're leaving or, or they're, they're getting out or, or they're just saying enough. And the more that do that, you know, the more I'm inclined to, to do the same thing, you know, maybe it's just a matter of creating new spaces. Um, I don't know quite yet. Um, I think, you know, I'm in the medical academic medicine area, which, you know, you, you can only lie so long in that area before you actually start really compromising people's lives. Um, you know, mental health is not as dire initially as say a physical health condition like cancer, but it's certainly, you know, it, it, it's, related in, in many cases to physical health, mental health is that is. And, and so I'm, I'm somewhat hopeful there. Um, but if the funding agencies that are funding this stuff require DEI and, and, you know, LGBTQT 3000 plus, you know, for their grant applications, then it's just off the rails. It's just off the rails because you're not going to understand the world that way. And so until that changes, good work is going to have to either be privately funded or, you know, done via via the person's own agency, uh, via online or, you know, questionnaires or what have you. But to do good medical research or medical, you know, academic medicine that's in psychology, you need 
physiology. You need measures that cost money. You need people that, that do the work. So I'm, I'm not sure, but I'm not hopeful either. Well, you mentioned s sort of how academic medicine just can't sustain um, fantasies about what is what is real. And, you know, we're, we're already kind of seeing this with some of these 21 year old detransitioners who are like, this is what they did to me at 15 years old. Right. And, and I would assume maybe I'm wrong, but I would assume that within the next, say, 10 years, we're going to start to see some legal ramifications for the the clinicians who who threw in with ideology when when the empirical evidence simply really wasn't there. I mean, do you think that that's on the horizon? That some sort of uh, consequence for the the embrace of ideology? Yeah, I mean, I certainly think that's the case with the gender insanity stuff. I mean, people are mutilating their bodies. And I'm seeing even this now with TikTok and mental health self-diagnoses, which one of my students wrote a Substack piece on. I mean, it's getting dangerous. And so people are going to start really physically altering their bodies, um, uh, adopting various exotic ornate identities that are based around mental illness that that sort of compromise their physical and mental functioning that are going to lead to suffering and pain that that they later regret big time especially those who obviously mutilate or, or alter you know mutilate sort of has that sort of evaluating tone but that's really what it is i mean when you look at some of this stuff and it's not hyperbole to say that these are just one-offs. This is this is something that's happening at scale, at scale. And I don't think people really appreciate that enough. Maybe not the sort of massive scale of, of body alterations, but that's happening more than people suspect, even with the, the sort of grotesque stuff you see that's being sort of one-offed on Twitter. But even lower level stuff where... You know, you have these mental health self-diagnoses and, and um, you know, other things that are really going to compromise the individual's functioning within the real world. Um, and so I do think a reckoning is, is really a hand. And we're already seeing that with the gender stuff. I mean, Vanderbilt was exposed and Philadelphia was exposed and Boston's was exposed. And, and they don't they run and hide when they're exposed. They don't they don't push back and with any scientific empirical rigor. And so that tells you a lot, or if they do, you know, they, they shut it down, you know? And so um, I think the more that happens, the, the more you're going to see exactly that sort of a, a, a pushback that is going to delegitimize and, you know, put an end to some of this stuff. Well, you mentioned that, um, that is happening at scale. And I think that guys like you and me and people who are really uh, uh, attuned observers to this know this. But I think a large segment of the American public is so horrified by these that when they see, you know, an instance of this on Twitter, they naturally put their blinders on and they want to tell themselves, oh, that's just that's an outlier. This isn't this isn't really happening. Like they don't want to lift up the rack to see what's under it, because if they find out what's under it, then they'll have to do something about it. 
um, and they'd rather not. And so the best thing is, is to keep pretending as the examples accumulate and add up, well, this isn't a pattern. These are just isolated instances. Um, I mean, I think people like, uh, you know, there's a lot of journalists, but Rufo and some other people are doing really good things to try to, to lift up the rock for people and say, see, you know, but I think that there's a certain kind of, of sort of go along, get along centrist who there's not enough evidence that would make them say, all right, this is out of control. I mean, how do we win those people over? Well, I think now it's really not even a matter of how you win them over, because if they have kids, they're, they're, you know, especially, you know, adolescent children and K through eight, they're seeing it. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, on Twitter, I'm in several DM groups with MDs, of parents of children who are pushing back. It's the parents who are waking up, not just to the one-offs on Twitter, but they're actually, you're seeing this in the schools, whether, you know, whether it's these exotic ornate identities being pushed. But I think you connect the one-offs and then you say, wait a minute, this is kind of what some of the watered down stuff I'm seeing at my kid's school is. And you put two and two together and you realize what this really is. Um, so I think in a lot of ways, even though it's sort of like, it's kind of like, you know, Twitter's a little bit of a shit posting site and, you know, libs of TikTok, but, but they're actually doing a service in a way. Um, because they're just shining a light on what this stuff is. And it's not meant to be sensitive. It's not meant to be sanitized, politically correct discourse. It's just meant to show you what raw stuff is occurring. And you either resonate with it or you don't. And people are resonating with it, which is what tells you everything you need to know. Yep. Well... J.D. Haldigan, it's been an excellent conversation. Um, anybody who, who tunes in should certainly follow him on Twitter at J.D. Haldigan and his Substack, stack um, where uh, he writes about much of what he's addressed here is the multi-level mailer. J.D., thanks so much for talking with us. Adam, thank you so much for having me. And I hope everybody finds our discourse really, really useful.